Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church. You can find more great content like this online at citylight.church. I wonder if you'd grab your Bibles. I'm just going to read a portion of Scripture and then we'll get into it. I'm going to read from James chapter 3. This is James, the brother of Jesus, writing to Christians in the first century and to us by extension. James chapter 3 verse 1. Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. If anyone is never at fault in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to keep his whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder, wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his or her life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell." All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles and creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by man, but no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. Brothers and sisters, this should not be so. Can both fresh water and salt water come from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce water. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your word. We thank you and praise you that by your grace and mercy you've brought us all here tonight. We pray now as we think about our lives, our hearts, ourselves, and also our culture. We also pray, Father, as we think about the culture in which we live, the society in which we are part of. Father, we pray that you'd help us to think your thoughts after you. Father, we pray tonight as we think about outrage culture, the the world in which we live. Father, give us fresh insight. Help us to see how we can live well for you. Live for our own joy, but the joy of others. And Father, help us to be effective, we pray, in this world. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We need to talk. Uh, We need to talk about outrage. That's what we're going to talk about tonight. Um, I just wanted to say uh, straight up as we come to this subject, um, when I found out that I was preaching on this subject, I went, oh, yeah, great, outrage. Like, I know all about outrage. And then I started, like, looking into it, and I realised how little I actually know about the culture of outrage. So what you're looking at tonight, if you look at me right now, you're not looking at an expert on outrage culture. That's who you're looking at. Um, You're looking at someone who is kind of opened a can of worms and is now desperately trying to kind of 
fine where they've all gone. That's pretty much what I'm doing. Um, it's a really interesting subject. It's a very deep subject. It's a challenging subject. Um, but it's something that I think will be helpful for us to think about tonight. So that's one caveat. I'm not an expert. Um, I know none of you think I am an expert in anything, but like, just wanted to make it clear, I'm not an expert in this area. Second thing is, um, because I'm not an expert, I've pretty much leaned really heavily on other people's thoughts about this. Um, you know, Ecclesiastes tells us there's nothing new under the sun. Um, I just want to be really clear. Like, I've actually really had to kind of rely on other people's brains and thinking on this to kind of help me grab it, like grab stuff together and helpfully pull something together that's going to be helpful for us tonight. Uh, people like David Brooks from the New York Times has done some really good thinking on this. Um, a woman named Ashley Gowan from the Gospel Coalition has thought a lot about sort of uh, outrage culture and a call-out culture, and I've really relied a lot on what they've had to say. So I just wanted to let you know, attribute appropriately to those people um, who've actually helped me really think this song through. So I'm resting on the shoulders of those giants largely tonight. Um, but uh, they're my two caveats uh, as we kind of approach tonight. So we're thinking about, we need to talk about outrage. Um, in 2003, uh, the black-eyed peas asked a question, where is the love? You know, remember the Black Eyed Peas? Anyone a fan of the Black Eyed Peas? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I realise I'm a bit of a dinosaur in this church, and that most people don't probably even, were barely alive in 2003. But anyway, in 2003, the, the Black Eyed Peas wrote a song called Where Is the Love? They asked the question in the context of the song by the same name. Um, and this pop song, right, wrestled with a whole bunch of really massive issues. Uh, wrestled with issues of injustice and discrimination and inequality and racism and tribalism and hate and oppression. Um, I'm known in sermons for singing, but I'm not going to sing it tonight. But I want to I read you the lyrics or part of the lyrics of this song, Where is the Love? You can join in if you want. This is what Black Eyed Peas wrote. They said, what's wrong with the world, mama? People living like they ain't got no mamas. I think the whole world's addicted to the drama, only attracted to the things that'll bring, bring a trauma. Overseas, yeah, we're trying to stop terrorism, but we still got terrorists here living. In the USA, the big CIA, the Bloods, the Crips, and the KKK. But if you only have love for your own race, then you only leave space to discriminate. And, you discriminate and, you, and, and to discriminate only generates hate. And when you hate, then you're bound to get irate, yeah? Madness is what you demonstrate. And that's exactly how anger works and operates. Man, you've got to have love. This will set us straight. Take control of your mind and meditate. Let your soul gravitate to the love, y'all. Y'all. <laughs> Where is the love? It's a really good question, I reckon. And, and perhaps like many pop songs, they're actually a little bit ahead of their time thinking about social issues. Because reality is we live today in a culture of outrage. Have you noticed that there seems to be a lot of rage today? It kind of feels like it's everywhere. I want to suggest, right, you don't have to really go further than just your own street that you live on to kind of experience some rage, or just pull out the phone. I would love to do that, but Stella, my little daughter, takes off a little time. You know, just pull out your phone from your back pocket, your purse, or your backpack, follow your media channels, your social media channels, and you'll see that we're now living in a world where people are kind of mad, people are kind of angry. Almost everyone I know is outraged about something. It's like an infection that's kind of seriously contagious. It's everywhere. And it can be little things, right? It can be 
the occasional bit of road rage that you either inflict on someone else or you experience yourself. It can be, I'm a cyclist, I cop it a fair bit. Like, there's a lot of rage for men, middle-aged men in Lycra. And <laughs> the destruct, but then there's the destructive call-out culture, which is really where we're going tonight, where people enjoy the thrill of publicly assassinating people because they dislike their opinion or don't like something about them where they find an event in their past history which maybe negatively impacted them or someone they know and they bring it to light and rather than seeking to remedy their behaviour or suggest a different approach or nuance where they are, rather than do that and, and in that also seek justice for the wronged, they seek to destroy the wrongdoer and do it as quickly and as publicly as they can. But that last example where we highlight someone's misdemeanour or a bad thing they said or something we didn't like very much and we publicly shame them on social media in particular or in the public is what's come to become to known as outrage culture or call-out culture. Would you like a definition of call-out culture? Whenever you go to... You know, you, I've just gone to Wikipedia. Here we are, the, the source of all good things. Google Wikipedia. Call-out culture also known as outrage culture, is a social phenomenon. It involves the public denouncing of perceived racism, sexism, homophobia, religious fanaticism, fascism, capitalism, transphobia, classism, national interest, and other forms of prejudice or bigotry. Denunciation of these perceived evils happens either in person or online. Um, the hardcore adherence of or users, I guess, of call-out culture, or at um, least believe that it's actually a mechanism through which we can move humanity forward to a better place. You know, when systems are broken uh, and we rely, we sort of feel distrust towards institutions that can fix things, we kind of adopt vigilante justice, basically, although it's often rough justice, in order to get the job done, to advance our society. It's everywhere. Now, there certainly is plenty to be angry about, I reckon, in our fallen world. Um, you know, you, it's okay to be angry. I mean, Jesus himself, right, was angered by injustice, exclusion. He hated false piety. He hated abusive leaders who preyed on their adherence. He was against misogyny. He was against harassment of all kinds. But the issue is that our anger at injustice, racism, bigotry, etc. today, for example, is often what I've called a metastasized kind of anger. It's an anger that has turned vicious, it's turned unkind, it's become ungracious, it's subhuman. David Brooks says it's like genocide as we try to wipe out people we don't like very much, lacks perspective, it lacks often self-examination, and at times I reckon it's detached from reality. John Calvin, one of my favourite fellas from the past, he says this, there's a great difference between anger that proceeds from godly zeal, I reckon that's Jesus' anger that proceeds from godly zeal, and the anger that any of us is moved by, either by his own goods or for his honour or for any respect of his own. There's good anger, there's anger that arises from godly zeal, where you genuinely see you know, injustice and things that are wrong that need to be made right, but there's also anger from within that is basically just all about us. How? Why, why have we ended up with a culture of outrage? I just want to suggest a few things. Uh, they're up on the screen. Four things. There's probably heaps more reasons why we've got here. One is this. Um, 
We are exposed to worldwide injustice 24-7, right? We, we see the injustices of the world all the time. Um, we see it, we hear everything that's going on in the world. It's on your phone, it's through your laptop, it's through all your feeds. Um, we see and hear all the injustice, and that makes us angry. We feel it. Secondly, we live in an increasingly polarised kind of time where we feel like our personal values are being threatened, the right feel like their values are being threatened, the left feel like their values are being threatened. And as a result, communities are becoming more and more segregated. People don't talk to each other anymore. We don't listen very well to each other. I think in our culture we've forgotten, we've lost the ability to argue well. I mean, in an age of... Tolerance, right? I think we're perhaps more intolerant of one another than perhaps we've ever experienced. And we don't interact with other people very well. And as a result, we sort of just end up sort of zooming into these what they call echo chambers, where we just kind of hang out with people who say the same things, who believe the same things, and look the same. We don't, we fail to engage. And we kind of end up with this kind of like us-against-them mentality. So David Brooks, in a really helpful article in the New York Times on January the 14th, uh, in this article called, you should read it, called The Cruelty of Call-Out Culture, he says this, once you adopt a binary tribal mentality, us versus them, punk, non-punk, victim, abuser, you've immediately depersonalised everything. You've reduced complex human beings to simple good versus evil. This is the culture we're in. And following this, and perhaps another reason why we live in a culture of outrage is because we live now in an age of kind of new morality where truth is now self-determined. So it used to be that out in the West in particular, we were kind of, we respected, we had this idea that God's law was a good thing and that helped us live as people in society. We've, but the enlightenment of the 18th century comes along and basically nature and all of his dudes go, well, God is dead. And now we end up with post-modernity, which is this idea that truth is now self-determined. My, I believe this, you believe that. I'm right, you're wrong. And the morality that flows from that. Truth is self-determined. Ed Stetzer, in a book that I read in the past week, which is a good book actually, it's called Christians in an Age of Outrage. We probably should have just read his book together actually, that would have been helpful rather than you listening to me. But anyway, he writes this, Outrage culture has no time for dialogue and it won't be distracted by nuance or even truth. You know, so 24-7 justice, polarised views, community segregation, truth now self-determined, I'm right, you're wrong, and I'm only going to care about what truth really is, I'm just going to live it out. And then I think, fourthly, maybe this is one, perceived failure of institutions to adequately deal with the wrongs of our world which has kind of given rise to perhaps vigilante justice, a little bit like call-out culture. I'm going to take things into my own hands. And I think a, I think a good example of that would be the Me Too movement. Anyone been following the Me Too movement or aware of the Me Too movement? Yeah, so the Me Too movement uh, particularly began within the entertainment industry, particularly in the United States, Harvey Weinstein or Steen. Um, you know, he was accused by one particular woman of harassing her in the workplace. And then as a result of that, that's to simplify it, but as a result of that, a whole bunch of other women started putting their hands and saying, me too, me too, me too. 
and a wave of it has come across. And, and I, think that's a, I actually think it's a really good thing because there's been a failure to adequately provide for safe places for women to be in the workplace at the hands of men who've abused their power and so women are now speaking up and we're seeing change. It's a good thing because women have perceived that the institutions that should be doing something about it have failed to do something about it so they've taken it into their own hands. I want to say straight up, call-out culture is not all terrible. Uh, outrage culture is not all bad. But I think these are some of the reasons how we've got to where we are today. People are mad, people are angry, we want change, some of the change is good, but this is the culture in which we live. How can we live well in this world of outrage and call-out? How can we communicate the grace of God, the goodness of the gospel, in an age of call-out culture? And tonight, I simply just want to do, you'll go, wow, that was a long introduction. I just simply want to do three things tonight. I want to tell you, I want to help us look at three things that I hope will help us live well, navigate life well for the glory of God and our joy in this world. And the three things are these. Grace, the goodness of the gospel, comforts the rightly outraged. Secondly, grace challenges the wrongly outraged. And third, grace, there is grace for outrageous wrongdoers. They're the three things that I want to talk about tonight, which I think help us just conceptualise what's going on and help us to live well. Um, so firstly, grace confronts the rightly outraged, or comfort, sorry. Because at its heart, I think, if I think best of the call-out culture and the outrage culture, at its heart, I think it's all about justice. And actually, at its heart, it's all about a desire for a better world. A perfect world. So I feel that we as God's people can affirm this desire, this hope, this dream of a world where there is no more brokenness, no more harassment, no more bigotry, no more, none of these things that break down culture. So outrage culture, yeah, it's known for overreacting, but it highlights, I think, for us just how cruel humans can be to one another since the fall. God made us, Genesis chapter 1, in his image to, to steward the world, to, to honour him, to, to care for one another, to be in relationship with other human beings in perfection, to, to steward the creation. And then you turn your pages just a couple of chapters over and when we experience the fall, sin enters the world and the relationships between us and God and one another and the creation are all broken down, all turned on their head. And that that was set in our hearts back in the creation is there still in us, this desire for a world where things work, where we get along, where there's peace and harmony and flourishing. And I think at the heart of the call-out culture is this desire. I want to say that many of the issues highlighted by those who would call out others are issues that we as Christians should also be kind of concerned about. The objectification of women domestic violence, inequality, vulgar public statements made by people towards other people, racism, bigotry, etc. We're the people who care about these things. We're the people who care about these things because Christ cared about these things. And after all, when those whom God has made in his image and loves are being overtly harmed, we should speak up and fight for these things. We care for justice, and as we go through this series, we're going to tackle some of these things that I think we ought to be really concerned about and think hard about. 
We care for justice. What does God love from his people? Micah chapter 6, verse 8, to act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. We ought to be people who care about justice. And we also know the scriptures remind us that the God, the living God of the scriptures, the God who's made us, who loves us, who's redeemed us in his son, is the God who sees everything and will ultimately one day sort everything out. We'll bring wrongs to right. We'll actually make things the way they ought to be. Proverbs 15.3 reminds us, the eyes of the Lord are everywhere, keeping watch on the wicked and on the good. That's something we can remind these people who are rightly outraged about, who are seeking justice. God is the God who sees all things and will sort out all things. And he affirms your desire for a better world. Jesus, right? He turns up. He has a go at the Pharisees. He has a go at organized religion, at men and women who are failing to love God and therefore love their neighbor as themselves. So somehow the cry at the heart of the outrage and call-out culture is actually right here in the Bible, I reckon, where the Old Testament Testament prophets speak out against injustice, where Jesus turns up, God in the flesh, in the Gospels, and then through his apostles in the letters we find in the rest of our Bible, speak out against religious leaders who prey on the innocent, who exclude the vulnerable, who reject the foreigner, who abuse the weak. We can tell the rightfully outraged about the God who sees, who knows, who cares, and has a plan to undo the horrors that are taking place in this world and the horrors that are even taking place in our lives. So as Christians, I think we can comfort the rightly outraged with the reality that God sees all things and will sort everything out ultimately. So there is the gospel comforts the rightly outraged, but secondly, The grace of the gospel, Jesus himself, challenges the wrongly outraged. In the age of outrage, in the call-out culture, where people, where everyone's getting upset about everything, I think we as Christians have a unique opportunity to remind overreactors that their wrathful, their belittling, their even animalistic treatment of others is actually out of touch with reality and truth. The reality and truth that they're just as broken as the people they're themselves calling out. Something that fascinates me, and I think is going to shape our series, something that fascinates me is that in our world now, the the narrative that shapes the, the, the majority of the people that you do dinners with, you do study with, you do life with, but hang on to this new narrative that everything's actually getting a whole lot better. The world's just getting better day by day. That's the narrative that is pervading through our societies, that the liberal progressives, that's who they are, they're the ones that are purporting this idea. The liberal progressives tell us that really the human heart is really good, it's beautiful, that we're making moral progress, we're on our way to utopia, it's just a matter of time. Ben Elton says this, I believe in the sum total of the good of humanity, that it's greater than the sum total of evil despite the evidence to the contrary. Matthew Paris, an atheist, UK journalist, um, quality journalist, thought leader, he wrote this recently, I do believe in moral progress. Really? I was chatting to my eight-year-old daughter the other day, Stella. Um, We were talking about how cool it would be to travel back in time. 
Um, you know, if we had a time machine, we could zip back to something. And we were basically said, what, I said to Stella, what decade of the, of the past would you like to travel back to? And Stella's like, oh, I want to go back to when my nana was born, you know, 1930s. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. And then she said, what about you, Dad? And I said, the 70s. She goes, why? Because safari suits, you know, and cool music and, you know, love. I don't know. Maybe I need some more love. I don't know. But, you know, Stella, 30s, me, 70s. But then we reflect on it, right? And every single decade of history is punctuated by some really good things, but also some seriously evil, heinous things. I'm a cyclist. I was out the other day. I was thinking about call-out culture and experiencing a bit of road rage and that sort of stuff. And uh, I then I got back to the coffee shop where I have coffee every morning and I said to my barista, Matt, I said, oh, can I ask you a philosophical question? He says, yeah, man, absolutely, Jack. Go for it. And I said, oh, do you think the world's getting better or worse? And he goes, worse. Bam. Straight up. Um, he's a guy who has a lot of time to think about the world, making coffees and, you know, talking <laughs> to various people. But it's interesting, isn't it? Like that, This is the prevailing narrative of our culture. Like Things are getting better. The utopia that we do, that dream about, the, the better world, is actually we can achieve it. We can pull it off. The scriptures, though, would say other. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. We talked about creation, right? God made the creation. It was good, 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 then very good. And then sin enters the world and relationships at every level are fractured and frayed and we get brokenness, we get call-out culture, we get outrage, we start killing people. And then in chapter 6, just prior to the flood, God makes this pronouncement about the human like the humankind. He goes, like he's just made us in love and we've turned our back on him. And God says, chapter 6, verse 5, the thoughts of humankind are only evil all the time. Utopia, progressives, culture, yet we're great. The heart is good. God, who are you going to believe? Came across a lecture given by William Golding a little while ago. Anyone read Lord of the Flies? He wrote Lord of the Flies, probably started in 1962, a few grimaces, you know, back there. Do you ever read it at school or something? I don't know. Yeah, a few nods. Now, basically, Lord of the Flies pictures this group of um, adolescent, middle-class, morally upstanding males who find themselves living on an island. Over the course of time, it gives rise to tribalism, and they just start wanting to kill each other. He gave a series of lectures in the US a little late after the publication of this book. Uh, let me quote from a lecture titled Fable. Note Golding here is not a Christian. He says this. Before the Second World War, I believed in the perfectibility of social man and that the correct structure of society would produce goodwill such that you could remove social ills by the reorganisation of culture. Don't change it yet. Ills by reorganisation of society. I think that picture, right, is the, is the concept of call-out culture, of outrage culture. If we can just rid the world of the people who I don't like very much, then we can have the social perfect, the perfectibility of social media. We can achieve utopia. That's kind of what he's saying. But then he goes on. After the war, I discovered what men could do to one another. This is a little bit non-PC, what he then says here, but these things were not done by the headhunters of Guinea or by primitive, some primitive tribe in the Amazon. They were done skillfully and coldly by educated men, doctors and lawyers, men with a tradition of civilization behind them to beings of their own kind. He goes on. 
Anyone who moved through these years without understanding that man produces evil as a bee produces honey must have been blind or wrong in the head. I believe that man is sick, not exceptional man, but average man. I believe then that the condition of man is a morally diseased condition. He's not a Christian, but he's picking up on the fact that we're a broken bunch of people. I want to say, like, don't, don't hear me tonight pointing the finger at you know, the liberal progressives and saying, well, you know, look at those silly people out there. I'm so much better. Um, you know, should the thoughts of my heart right, have been gathered together just over the past week and, I don't know, formed into a YouTube clip or one of those Facebook memory things that just sort of pop up and remind you how beautiful you are? If the thoughts of my heart over this past week were just sort of like pulled into one of those little things and I'd be stuffed and I would run from this city. You're looking at a morally diseased preacher. Yeah, I'm capable of tremendous good, but I'm also capable of heinous evil. As Ashley Gorman on the TGC article says, the outrage culture pulls the curtain back, unveiling the way we are isn't not only imperfect, it's actually a horror show. Fascinating that the culture itself is exposing the reality of who we are. The trouble with call-out culture, the outrage culture, is that the quest for justice can quickly turn into barbarism if it's not infused with a quality of mercy and understanding of human frailty and a path to redemption. The frightening thing, especially with the call-out culture, actually is the motivation and the intention behind it. Rather than being outraged about an issue or a particular person's action and then you know, calling them out or, or calling that action out for the purpose of redemption and change and restoration, the desire actually is assassination if not the person, certainly to assassinate their character. It's as if you're throwing acid onto their face such that they are marred forever. The person, yep, you're snapping out, you're calling out, should probably be called out, maybe and pay for what they've done, but so should you and so should I. That's the reality. And while I'm here, right, I don't think outrage culture or the call-out culture is some kind of new phenomenon simply of the 21st century. It might look different, but it's been around for a long time. Um, what's changed about it today is that it's, its reach and its power. You know, before social media, before the internet, you know what, I was born before the internet? It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, I've been around for a long time, you know. <laughs> before the internet, before social media, like, call-out culture, you know, calling someone out, we probably probably limited just to a little local community. You know, so, and therefore the, you know, the call out would only spread by word of mouth so it wouldn't kind of get too far and, you know, hopefully it could be stopped pretty quickly if necessary and, you know, various community leaders could step in and kind of, you know, sort out misrepresentation or misunderstandings and we could sort of work towards a better world together. But everything's different now, right? With one slanderous tweet, blog post or Facebook status update, we have the potential to destroy someone's reputation in the eyes of thousands across continents in a matter of hours. And because it's done in the privacy of our own home, behind a keyboard or on your iPhone, whatever it might be, there's no one there to kind of stop you or come in from the community. It's too late. Once the call-out bell is tolled, you cannot, can't be unheard. 
And some people, as a result of these behaviours, will never look at the wrongdoer again the same way. The acid of the call-out culture has marred them forever. Denunciation, especially done through social media, means you can destroy people you don't even know. There's no personal connection, and therefore there's no opportunity for mercy or redemption or apology or forgiveness or together working out how we can be better together. I like football. A bit over a year ago or so, I think now, Barry Hall, he played for the Sydney Swans. He was a thug, um, you know, because he played for Swans, sorry, Tom, but, you know... um, (laughs) But, you know, like a lot of football players, right, they're brilliant on the field, they're pretty average off the field, right? And, and he, um, was a, he was a thug on the field, um, but, you know, and obviously like a lot of guys, post he played the game really well, after his career on the field, he's now looking for a job, and like a lot of footballers, they end up in the media of some kind, written, published media, radio, whatever it might be. Um, Hall ended up on Triple M Radio commentating football. I think it was just in moments before a game, he made a very, I can't remember what it was, but it was an extraordinarily vulgar comment about an ex-footballer's wife. And it's, it was such a bad statement that actually it's been sort of taken down from the internet. It was that kind of vulgar. But what happened to Hall was that he ended up being, like, piled on. He was sacked by Triple M. I think he was rightly sacked by Triple M, but then it was pile-on territory on social media. And as a result of the call-out, the result of the actions of the, the social media world and human beings just piling on and denouncing him, he's now unemployable. He's now kind of... Um, he's depressed, he's anxious, he's a stressed man. Um, there's no way back for that monster. Now, I'm not at all justifying the actions of Barry Hall, but where's the mercy? Where's where's the awareness of all of our human frailty? Where's the pathway to redemption for Barry Hall? According to the culture, he's a monster and he should be written off forever. Better without Halls of the world. But I want to say, who can stand? None of us are perfect. None of us are righteous. We're all broken. We're all frail. We're all weak, physically, emotionally, spiritually. We're all busted. And that, I think, is what leads me to the gloriously beautiful last point. There is grace for outrageous wrongdoers. In fact, there's grace for all of us. You know, as we meet people who've fallen from grace... Or as even as we Christians, those who've met the risen Lord Jesus and have been forgiven for all our sins, past, present, and future, when we meet people who've fallen from grace, or when we even have conversations about people who've fallen from grace, we, the blood-bought people of God, can sympathise with them. We've been there too. The person who's had a huge public failure, or maybe not even a huge public failure, isn't alone at the rock bottom of society. Why? Because we know what it was like to be there in some kind of way. You know, today's moralism says, I'm right, you're wrong. You know what Jesus says? Jesus says, no one is right, not even one. 
Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, there is no, uh, he writes this after he's compared, like he's gone through, he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the salvation of everyone who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ, chapter 1. He then kind of goes through Jews, the people of God, the Israelites, they are not righteous. He then says Gentiles, everyone else, they're not right with God. And he lands the plane in chapter 3, verse 10. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away and they have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. I mean, our wrongness, our our sin deserves to be exposed and laid bare. We, need, we deserve to have the full wrath of God, his judgment, his wrath, and our destiny to hell. We should have all of that laid bare, fully exposed. But the extraordinary truth of the gospel is this, that in Christ we are completely exposed, and yet through faith we are never rejected. So have a look, Romans chapter 5. Paul then does this. He says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So as sinners saved by the blood of Jesus, washed clean by the blood of Jesus through faith in his finished work, we can stand with those crushed by call-out culture and say, you know what, I've been at the rock bottom too. In my own way, and let me tell you, the gospel can pay for this horrible thing you've said or done. You can be right with God. That's the scandal of grace. That's the scandal of the power of the blood of Jesus. You can take a monster, you know, whether that's a true monster or someone who's just perceived to be a monster by our culture. You take a guilty sinner and make him or her a giant of the faith, a child of God. And as Christians, as a church that meets in the name of God, builds on the apostles' teaching on the gospel of salvation by faith through grace alone, we ought to be a refuge for the people who are the casualties of our culture, but also the, the people who perpetuate this kind of culture as well. Um, one of the best books I've read since I became a Christian was a book by a guy named Francis Spufford. He wrote a book called Unapologetic, um, How Faith Still Makes Emotional Sense in Our World or something like that. But he has this beautiful picture. Oh, let me read you this. Talking about the Christian community, of all things, Christianity isn't supposed to be about gathering up the good people, shiny, happy, squeaky clean, and excluding the evil people, frightening, alien, repulsive, for the simple reason there aren't any good people, not that can be securely designated as such. Again, of course, there are Christians like that. Religion can certainly slip into being a club or a cosy affinity group or a wall against the world, but it isn't supposed to be. What it's supposed to be is a league of the guilty. Not all guilty of the same things, or in the same way, or to the same degree, but enough for us to recognise each other. 
You're invited, by the way, everyone's invited here to a dinner for the League of the Guilty next door in just a few moments' time. That's where you're going to be. You're very welcome. Let me wrap it up. Where is the love in a culture of outrage? You know, as our society kind of rages on, you know, raising pitchforks to, to kill the beast on the other side, whatever side they may be, I want us to say tonight, we're the people that stand in the fray, telling the good news of the God who can slay the things that makes the outrage culture so horrible in the first place, the beast that's inside of us. Brothers and sisters, it's our privilege as Christ's ambassador, our privilege is to draw people to Christ, as Scott Saul says, not by loudly discrediting what they believe, by telling them how wrong they are and how right we are, how good we are and how bad they are, but by showing them a light that is so lovely that they want with all their hearts to know the source of it. Who's the source of it? Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And Proverbs 15, point, 15 verse 1 points us to the cross to Jesus. Proverbs 15 1 says, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up dissension. You know, our harsh words stir up constantly dissension and division. That's really the purpose and the point of call out outrage culture. But a gentle word is the pathway to peace. Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the gentle word of God, who endured the outrage of the world, bearing its wrath and indignation and denunciation, he knew that it was the only pathway to peace. Jesus Christ is the gentle word from heaven to hellish outrage junkies and hell-bound outrageous wrongdoers like me and you. And although we crucified Heaven's peace-bringing, life-redeeming and mercy-offering word. Guess what he does? He rises again from the dead to turn the other cheek and offer another word of grace. Where's the love? It resides in the goodness of the gospel. Where do we find the gospel? We find it among those redeemed by Jesus who've experienced God's outrageous love and mercy and forgiveness who've come to know and love the gentle word of God, who find themselves living in an outrage culture. And because of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who we know is in control, you and I as God's people, we know that he will redeem all things. And because of that, we can be calm, we can be bold, and we can be gracious as we live for Jesus and love like Jesus as we hold out the gospel in a culture of outrage, living lives that look like him for his glory. Let's pray and ask God to help us to stand firm in him as we live in this world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your great love for us, that while we were still sinners, you sent Christ to die for us. Uh, we praise you, Father, for uh, your mercy um, towards us in Jesus. Uh, Father, we recognise uh, that we deserved your wrath and your indignation. We deserved your rage against our brokenness and sin. But we thank you that in place of your rage, you substituted your son Jesus to take on him the punishment we deserved. Father, we pray as we live in this world which is confused and angry, uh, yes, at times rightly seeking justice, Father, help us to be men and women who point people to Jesus, 
the one through whom you'll redeem all things, the one through whom you'll restore all things, the one through whom you'll make all things right. Father, we pray tonight, Father, that you would by your spirit perhaps convict us of our part in this culture. Perhaps tonight we're reminded of moments perhaps where we've slandered people. Father, perhaps we need to do some restorative work there, not just with you, but with those whom we have slandered. Father, we pray that you would help us to be a people who are calm in the storm, who are wise with how we speak. And Father, in all that we do, may we point people to Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church or to donate to the work of City Light Church, visit us online at www.citylight.church.